A warning before we begin. Some listeners may find some of what you're about to hear distressing. Neville, hi. Hello. John Simpson. Yeah. I've come to Forest Gate in the borough of Newham in East London. Nice and warm in here. It's got to be, man. When you're indoors, you're supposed to be warm. <laughs> I'm at the house of CJ's grandfather, Neville. I'm here to see his daughter, Keisha McLeod. In our original podcast series, we tried to get to the bottom of what happened to her son, Corey Jr., or CJ as we know him. Now, over a year on since we released that series, I'm back in East London. You're listening to Who Killed CJ Davis? I'm John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. Today, atonement. On the 4th of September in 2017, Corey Jr. Davis was shot in broad daylight while sitting by a playground in East London with a group of other boys. He was 14 years old. No one's ever been charged with his murder. It's thought his killing was the result of a gang feud in the local borough. But from all my investigation, I don't believe CJ was the intended target. As teenage murders reach a 13-year high in London and growing numbers of grieving families seek some kind of justice, stories like CJ's become ever more relevant. In this episode, I'll speak to the top police officer in the borough of Newham and hear how CJ's mother's coping, now over four years since his brutal death. But back to that house in Forest Gate. Hi, Dad. Keisha soon arrived at her father's, but before we sat down to chat, someone else was there. Do you want a cup of tea or anything? Oh, fine, sure? thank you, yes. I'm That's cool. for you and Keisha. Okay. It's nothing much, it's from your local shop. <laughs> <laughs> a lady called Emma turned up. It's not her real name. We've used it to protect her identity. We met Emma in part four of the series. She was local to the area and found CJ shortly after he'd been shot rushing out from her flat when she heard the sound of a gun. She remembered seeing someone she thought was the killer. You can see his eyes, you can see his forehead. I couldn't make that out, but that's about it really, because I didn't want to look at him. But Emma had never met Keisha, CJ's mum, until we introduced them. As I'm trying to look out through the window and look to see who's being shot or hurt, I'm on the phone with the police. They sat in silence and listened to part of the interview from this podcast. I said to the police, do you know something? I think someone's been hurt right across the road. So I saw him there. I saw a boy. I saw CJ. At this point, Keisha indicated to pause the recording. When you say you saw CJ, is that you just, he was on the wall, just laying there? He was laying flat back. Was his eyes closed or open? Do you remember? His eyes were closed. Mm. You know, just me just hearing that. Mm. If you just have, would have had just asked me, I, I probably wouldn't have described it. It's only because I've just heard myself. So I've got the picture, I can visualise it literally mm. in my head. How did he look? I don't even know what he had on you know, because um, the police yeah, have not um, ever given me back his clothes. I'm just thinking back, visualising it in my head. I came running out. Mm. I was in my PJs. And when I saw him, he was just like feet away. The gratitude that I have for you just to say, like, you don't even know why... I, give, I just give thanks. And you know why? 
because you're a God-fearing woman and you want to do right and you saw something and you know it didn't feel right. So you wanted to make sure or be there for that person and you was. I can't thank you enough for that moment. On the afternoon of the shooting, Keisha was in central London, sorting out a new bank account for herself and one for CJ. He's always had a children's savings account. So I said, I'm going to give you a grown-up account now so you can get a little debit card. And but I said to him, I think you're going to have to come with me. You know, he goes, Mom, I'm just tired. You know, boys, he's going through his teenage years. I'm just still in bed. So I said, all right, yeah. I'm going to try and sort it out. If they need you, you're going to have to come down there. So I got to the bank. I did my account. I was so happy. And I said, I need to do his. And the lady goes to me. He's 14 now. I said, yeah. She goes, oh, from his 14, you've got to do a face ID. So I'll set it up for you, but we need to do this part. And she goes, what do you think he's doing now? I said, bloody boy's probably sleeping. Yeah. As I came out of the station, I got the phone call to say from my dad, saying CJ's been shot. My dad FaceTimed me. How did your dad find out? Said the little boy's just run around and told me. I said, where's the boy now? He said, he's running back. I said, well, follow him. He got to the area and I said, hold up your phone, Dad. Yeah, yeah. I said, give the phone to the police. That was a while back because obviously the police came. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. So when the woman said to me, "Where's your? what's your son doing now? I said, he's probably sleeping. sleeping. Do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? He was sleeping, but he never woke back up. I remember coming off the phone, I saw a black taxi in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, CJ's been shot. CJ's, my son's been shot. And I fell to the ground and two women in burkas came to me and they held me and they prayed with me on the floor there. You understand what I'm saying? They got me a bottle of water and I said, my son's been shot. And they said, and I was saying, Jesus, take the will. And they were just praying. And then I, I looked at that black taxi and I just said, I need to get in the taxi. The next moment, Keisha was in that taxi and on the way to the Royal London, a hospital in the east end of the capital. You know that time when I was with him, Keisha, I was looking out for you. I didn't know how you looked like, but all I was doing, I was doing what I can. Obviously, I'm trying to concentrate on him, but I'm looking around for you and I'm telling him that mommy's coming, mommy's coming. So that was your instincts to say and do? Yeah. It's like I was in you on that day. Does that make sense? It's like somehow... My energy channeled into you for you to be with him that day and all the actions that I would have wanted, that's what you did. But Keisha didn't arrive at the scene while Emma was holding her son, who lay bleeding from his head. Soon, CJ was put in an ambulance and then Emma was taken to the local police station with no more than a first name for the boy she'd just been holding. I was just with the police for the whole night. Really? Yeah, and all I was thinking is about, he's about CJ. Yeah, because you, you. Yeah, you don't even I don't know, know what's, what's going on. You've just been trying to do this and now they're, you're, they're just probably asking you loads of questions. I'm in different like rooms. I'm in different rooms. I'm exhausted and, and I know they've given us snacks, but... When did you find out that he didn't make it? I, I went to work the next day. <sighs> with no sleep. Eight o'clock shop, I even opened the office doors. I, I can hear people in the office saying things, but I'm like... So how did me, you find I it? I think it was my manager. You were such an important part of that whole situation, just being there with him for me. And then 
it's like you've had to be over there by yourself, not knowing because no one's coming to you because you're not the parent, you're not a family member. You were just the person that found him. You know, Keisha, I'm glad that I was there. I'm glad that I found him. I'm sorry that it's the trauma that you've had to go through with it, but... (laughs) As Emma and Keisha spoke, they leant in and held each other's hands. I'm going to always appreciate and love you. It's horrible what you've seen and what I've had to endure because even after that, it's, it's, it's just a load more other stuff because of what's going on in this area that I'm having to digest and see and be like, wow, CJ, you're just this small thing. You're in such a big situation and it upsets my it's soul. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. Hence why we've had to move out. Both Keisha and Emma ended up leaving East London following the killing. I disliked this area completely. It took away my son. I only come here because my dad lives here. I yeah. tried to move him out of the area and he know, he only knows Stratford. One thing I ain't doing is sitting by the window upstairs yeah. and any little na- loud noise or a bang, yeah. I'm not running. You feel at ease? I do, I do. Even when CJ passed, it's weird I got a sense of ease. And I don't even know how to explain this because I had no long... The worry that I had for him no more, all of that had gone. So it's like, what am I doing now? Yeah, yeah. Literally, because... But I understand that. Because everything that I was doing was surrounded. Yeah, Everything yeah. was for him. I think of you all the time, especially when it comes near, like, near to the anniversary and <clears throat> to be very honest, like Christmas is... I'm still there. You know, so... And it's his memories and everything that go on. Watching Keisha and Emma, there was a sense of release, as though something had been lifted in that room. During the series, we managed to identify a possible suspect in CJ's killing. I'd be given the name of the person via a source with links to the gangs in the borough. This one man, they said, allegedly drove the car, then pulled up in the playground in Forest Gate, got out, fired two shots, then got back in the stolen Range Rover and drove off, all on his own. I come to the local police station in Forest Gate. Hello, mate. Um, here's Richard Tucker. I was here to see the most senior officer in the area, keen to find out if they had any more information on the potential suspect and what progress had been made on the case. After a short wait, an officer took me through a labyrinth of corridors, past storerooms piled high with stab vests and other equipment, and finally into a large office. I'm Richard Tucker, I'm the Detective Chief Superintendent, I'm the BCU Commander for North East London, which is Walthamstow and Newham London Boroughs. I'm the, the Senior Representative for the Met Police in this part of London. How long have you been doing this job and how long have you been in the police? So I've been in the police 36 years and I've been in command here for the last three and a half years. Last year we made a podcast, we're 12 months on, what progress can you update us on? 
So in, t- in terms of the actual murder, it's not shut. But the sad fact is, is that people have not been brought to justice, not been charged or arrested for CJ's murder. I know the officers involved, they're hugely dedicated. But as we sit here now, there are people who know what's happened. And CJ's mum, Keisha, wakes up every day in that split second, you know, that I'm sure she goes through, that she's lost her son, that pain comes back. Because somebody out there, I imagine numerous people, actually know who did this. And if they care about their community, they would come forward and help the agency that's going to bring justice for CJ. And that agency, whether people like it or not, is the police. And I know some people don't like the police, I accept that, that comes to the territory. But we're not talking about shoplifting here. We're talking about a child who lost his life in the most violent circumstances. And it's about being doing the decent thing. And I think that's a challenge for us as a society where there's a lot of people moan and groan about the inequalities in society. And there are some. There's a lot, isn't there? But what about the inequality for CJ and his family? The podcast unearthed some social media activity. Mm -hmm. I was sent screen grabs of conversations between a member of the Beckton Boys who we believe the gang responsible for killing CJ. And I think it's quite widely believed that that's the case. It's Mm -hmm. it's a fairly open secret. This Instagram chat appeared to show a level of knowledge of what had happened. Can you tell us whether or not there's been an application to any social media companies in this case as part of this investigation? I I don't know about that. And that's very much the the operational decisions would be the SIO and, and the and the leadership team on the investigation about about those. One of the, the senior members of the Beckton boys mm. is in prison for other matters, some quite serious offences. His name's mm. Isaac Donko. Uh, he's known as Young Diz. Yeah. He has somehow been make, continuing to make drill rap music while in prison, it appears. He's released at least two videos. One of them seems to have about a quarter of a million hits on YouTube. How's that possible? He shouldn't be doing that. And his behaviour needs to be confronted and dealt with. But our process is, and when we find out about incidents like that, we speak to the prison authorities, which we've got a very good working relationship with. And I would expect them to, to deal with people like Donker, and that shouldn't be happening. Can we go and get a warrant and, and, and go into a cell and do that? No, we can't. The prison authorities should be dealing with that. Now that you're aware this video exists, will you be getting in touch with the prison authorities? Yep. First thing in the morning, I'll speak to our prison liaison officer. I'll get on this because that's wrong. Because it dents trust and confidence, not only in the prison service, the justice system and us. Isaac Donko, or Young Diz, as he's known, has denied any involvement in CJ's murder. Now, I wanted to ask DCS Tucker about the name I had. For legal reasons, we can't broadcast that name, as he's never been arrested or charged in this case. So for the podcast, we've blanked it out. During the course of the investigation, one source came to us with a fairly clear account claiming that one person was in the car and they named this individual. I'd like to put the name of the potential suspect to you. The idea is that this man is a member of the Beckton boys, known to the police. As far as I know, never previously arrested in 
connection with this case. He pulled up in the stolen Range Rover, uh, stepped out, fired the shotgun twice. One of those shots struck CJ in the head, killing him. The other struck another young man who survived. The name I was given was Can you tell us if he's a suspect? We would never comment on named suspects in any inquiry, and it would be wrong for me to do that at the moment while the investigation is still going on. How many people do you believe were involved in shooting CJ? Okay, I mean, I'm... It's not really for me to say that. That's very much the area for the murder team to actually comment on. I did ask Detective Chief Inspector Dave Wellams for an interview. He's the senior investigating officer in CJ's case, and we heard from him during the series, but he declined to speak this time around. It was clear DCS Tucker wouldn't comment on the specifics of the investigation, so I moved the conversation on and asked about the rivalry in the borough of Newham between the two main groups, the Beckton Boys and Wood Grange. I wondered if much had changed in the last year. What's changed in terms of that rivalry in this time? So, I mean, the, rival, the rivalry is still there and you wouldn't expect me to say anything different, but I'd say their impact against each other is not what it was. We've had some significant results recently uh, since, since we last spoke around those individuals. It's a focus for me every day. You cannot take your eye off those groups because the use of casual extreme violence is always there. When you've got a named group like the Beckton Boys, mm. you know that there is a group in the south side mm. of Newham mm. who have this MO. They, they'll travel mm. into the north side. They will mm. pull out a knife, pull out a gun, mm. target young men they believe to be part of a rival gang. When you don't have the evidence, perhaps, to find an individual among them mm -hmm. who's responsible or you don't have the evidence to bring them to justice, what do you do? Not, not wanting to sort of disclose all, all our tactics, but we look to disrupt their activity. We target their, their criminal behaviour every single day. When they do come out of prison, and there's a lot of them in prison, they come out and there's some sort of judicial control over them in terms of licence, their tags, their curfews, they're on probation. We don't want these boys to go on this merry-go-round of come out, go back to prison. But what a lot of young lads have got to realise, my job is to keep them safe and I'm responsible for doing that. And I will use every tactic and I get criticised and I have been in the past in terms of use of stop and search locally. But that is one of the tactics we use to disrupt gang activity. And if it prevents another child losing their life, I won't apologise for using it. I will apologise sometimes because it's used incorrectly, because we're not perfect. But I, th I want the community to know that it, the use of that comes from a good place. It is an ongoing process all the time. We react to information that we get. We know who they are, and, and people listening to this one, well, if you know who they are, why don't you go and deal with them? It's not as simple as that, because we work on information, but the charge, charge level is on evidence. They are different things. Charging and putting people for the court is based on evidence. This is Oliver Moody, the Berlin correspondent for The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks to the Stories of Our Times podcast, I've been able to bring you in-depth reports from the heart of Europe, from Angela Merkel's legacy and the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme, to an investigation into how a former Third Reich official became one of the architects of modern Germany. 
This podcast only exists because of the subscribers to The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. At the time of this recording, in London alone, 27 teenagers have been shot, stabbed or beaten to death. If there were three more victims... 2021 will be the worst year for teen murders in the capital since 2008. One of the biggest challenges is when you look at gang violence across London, and it's not unique to East London, you could equally speak about uh, some of the gangs in North London and South London. Their names have been established for maybe three decades. I suppose the question you have to ask is, why is it? How, How have they got that resilience? Well, what's their recruitment policy? And... So hotspots for crime, it, it's generally the, the locations are still the same. The challenge for authorities is how, how do you change that environment? Why have we got this sort of the longevity of some of these groups who ha- have obviously gone through generations now of, of that criminal behaviour? And there's a lot of them in prison doing an awful lot of prison time. Do these cases affect you personally? I think if you ask when I was younger, you, you always cared and you always professional but I think as you get older you know I'm in my 50s now you, there's, there is an emotional response so I go around and see the families of, of some of the victims and it is heartbreaking but I come as a, as a dad as a father of a, a 17 year old son and a 14 year old daughter and a 12 year old son I, I feel it personally our job is to look after people and sometimes when you fall short around that you do feel it very very personally Is there a message for Keisha McLeod CJ's mum? Yeah. We're your cops We're your police. We don't give up. We're with you on this. We got compassion and we think about CJ every day because I do. We will not give up on you. From talking with DCS Tucker, 
It did seem that the investigation had not moved on much since we released the series more than a year ago. Detectives have been hampered from the start by a lack of CCTV evidence and a wall of silence. They also have yet to track down the stolen car or find the shotgun. I went, I was going through a process and yeah. I didn't feel what was going on and I didn't like that. So I said, okay, and then I went to counselling. So it's not like I just stopped. Back at CJ's grandfather's house, I sat down with Keisha. We're sitting in the kitchen, round the corner from where it happened to CJ. What memories of CJ does this house bring up for you? Hmm. Good ones. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm thinking of the good ones. We'd come, we'd have our meals here um, on this table. He used to always come here before school and because literally school's two minutes away and he'd always come and check on the granddad in the morning and he found him at the bottom of the stairs once having a mini stroke. Yeah, and he phoned the ambulance and got them round here first and then called me and said, yeah, don't worry, everything's fine. I'm going to school now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's just, I remember situations that just shows me the lad that I had. Last year, we made a podcast series. Mm -hmm. How was that for you? I think the gathering of information was very important for me. It gave me, it gave me a full understanding and hearing every episode as it was coming out, the most important one for me, the one with Emma, because that's the moment that I didn't know of. She was as warm um, as caring, as thoughtful. He felt loved at that moment, even though it was such a horrible moment. He had the right person there for him. The gang situation yeah. in the borough hasn't changed massively changed. No. The, the drill tracks are still mm -hmm. being made. Mm -hmm. There were a number of tunes that referenced mm -hmm. CJ and his death. Mm -hmm. Are you still coming across these and are you still getting abuse online yes yes and yes to all of those because for one I'm realizing social media is a good thing for me as well because I get to meet first-time journalists and people that want to reach out to do good but I also see a lot of bad and one of the things that I did come across is a page it was a fake page for my son and it was basically them mocking his death it had pictures of us on holiday the tagline underneath was healing my wounds, my head wounds, um, the car, Range Rover, the, the video of it saying this is my dad's new car. I was shocked and appalled to the fact that could be done. So I first reached out to the person as well as obviously Instagram to ask them to take it down as well as also my liaison officer to help me do so. But I just wanted to try and get into the mentality of the person and I realised there's no really no point and I'm really it's been detrimental to me now because it's bringing me down to a point that I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing for myself we talked a lot about the wall of silence yeah how that affects young men what do you think needs to be done to make people feel confident enough to oh. speak out in these situations that's bigger than me or you however I believe that that wall of silence will break. I know CJ will get his justice. And I guess they carry the guilt or the, the blood yeah, in their hands. Rightfully that. so. It's a child that's life that you've been taking. And as we always see from these ex-gangsters, there is always that time. There's always that click. There's a day where it changes. And I'm going to be around for that day. 
That's all. When, where, or how does this end for you? It all ended the day he died. It already ended. Like that was that was my normal. So when we say how, when does it end? It already ended. I'm just finding a new way of living. This being the new narrative of my story of me doing justice for him. So that doesn't end because I haven't got the justice yet. CJ would have been 18 this year. Mm. Just paint me a picture of what you think he would have been doing now. Well, when he was born, I bought a bottle of champagne for him. Very expensive one. I mean, me, his dad and his sister at the time, we wrote our names on it and we were supposed to open that on his 18th. So anytime when I think of 18 right now, I just think of that bottle of champagne that I was unable to open with him. I was going to open it on his birthday. Then I said, no, because it was for him to open. So now it's just a monument now that I will have where I have all his memorabilia of him. So for me, I'm kind of stuck there. The the I'm thinking there's so much I've missed of him till now. The four years, this is when I, he would be able to say, yeah, I'm an adult now with, with so much deep voice. I can hear it. I can hear it. And I know he was going to be taller than me, but he would still be the spitting image of me. So I'd be able to still put him in his place. But just to see him grow, it would have been beautiful. I can't say anything nice when the years come up because it's just one more year without him. We're just going to be thinking of him and trying to have fun and and just remember, do the memory and the silly little things that he used to do because he was silly. He was a clown, but he was my clown, but he made us all laugh. He was, he was stupidly funny, but it, that was his nature. So. so you're never going to open that bottle of champagne? No, no. It wasn't mine to open. It was his. After seeing Keisha, there was one last place I wanted to go. I am outside the cemetery where CJ is buried in southeast London. The cemetery isn't far from where CJ's mum and her brothers grew up and where his sister still lives. Just looking at the entrance, a long crescent with privet hedges and a high raw iron gate and two red brick pillars. I walked into the cemetery. It was neat and tidy, as you'd expect. Four groundsmen were doing some gardening work. As I walked further in, a few of the graves I noticed had colourful flowers, some with birthday balloons, suggesting that the people buried there were either quite young or recently dead. After about 10 minutes, I found CJ's grave. It's tucked in behind some larger marble tombstones. It's uh, a simple spot. And it was here on Wednesday, the 20th of October, 2017, that CJ was buried. He would have turned 19 just after Christmas. There's a small wooden cross either end. And the one I'm looking at has a plaque that says, Corey Junior Davis. 291202 to 0509017. My son, my baby boy, my angel. 
your life was my blessing. Rest in eternal peace. There's blue and white flowers, imitation flowers, white stones scattered across the top of the grave and lots of autumn leaves that have been caught. It's uh, strange to think after all the time, the long hours with Keisha, digging through documents, talking to people, that six feet under here is the young man whose story I've told. While standing there, I noticed a man nearby, maybe three or four plots away. Mum's mum's over there with granny, uncles, granddad. I've been coming here since I was fourteen. He was tending to a grave. He told me it was his mother's. He said he also knew Keisha. He acknowledged CJ's grave. CJ man, you rest in peace, sir and said it was far from uncommon to have young men, or boys, buried in the cemetery. Like round here, like I said, you've got 14, you've got 16-year-olds, you've got 17-year-olds, all similar circumstances, whatever. It's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. Yeah, after people around here, uh, they're young people, young, young. After he left, I took another moment and reflected on what had just happened. Uh, we got chatting about CJ, and I said, you know, he was only 14. And then this gentleman looked up and he pointed to four or five, maybe six graves and said, well, that one was 16, that one was 18, that one was 22. And dotted around were the brightly coloured graves that we noticed on the way in. That's been the story throughout. CJ's story is extreme. It is hard to believe in a city that's generally so safe that a child could face the, the barrel of a shotgun in the street. But there is a broader problem. Young men are growing up facing extreme violence, learning extreme violence, struggling to express emotions and being fed into the drug trade from an early age, being normalized to it. And we've heard it all before, but there has to be a way that stories like CJ's don't end like this. And that graveyards like this one aren't filled with young men who had prospects and families and loved ones but here we are this podcast was brought to you by the subscribers of the times and the sunday times it's hosted by me john simpson the crime correspondent for the times this episode was produced by will rowe the executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design was by Tom Birchall with original music from Cam Shuck. If you have any information on CJ's death, my details are in the description notes for this episode. Also, a £20,000 reward remains in place from the Metropolitan Police for any information on CJ's death. More information is in the podcast description. 
And if you have any thoughts or comments on what you've just heard, do leave us a review. Thank you.